Welcome to Qtalks, a podcast series by QTech, the Cambridge University Technology and Enterprise Club. I'm Shreya. And I'm Thomas, and we are your hosts for Qtalks, a series for aspiring innovators in which we talk about the typical and not so typical journeys of making ideas reality and changing the world. This week on QTalks, we're talking to Johnny Everett, entrepreneur in residence for Entrepreneur First. Johnny founded a startup called The Chat Shop, which now has over 100 employees across two countries. He advises the next wave of deep tech startups at Entrepreneur First in Paris. Hi, Johnny. Thanks very much for coming on the show with us today. My pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. If you can start by giving us an overview of your background, please. Sure. So uh, I went to Loughborough University uh, in the Midlands. Uh, I then left and, and joined Accenture and did technology consulting for a couple of years before uh, realizing that I might lose my soul if I, if I stayed too much longer. Uh, so I did what any kind of normal person would do. I, I met a guy in a bar who was uh, the brother of one of my friends at the time. And we started talking about business ideas and, and so on. And uh, eventually came up that he was going to sort of start this this company with his dad. So I thought, okay, sod it. I've always wanted to to try and be an entrepreneur. So I sort of quit my quit my job and we clubbed together £5,000 and, and we started a company called The Chat Shop. Um, and it was in the sort of live chat chatbot space. Basically, the premise was trying to help other companies utilize this technology better. And one of the key things to do that was around resource and, and people and, and technology and the combination of those two things. So we basically had completely no idea what we were doing. We spent most of our initial startup capital on, on MacBooks uh, because you have to have a MacBook if you want to run a startup. And um, eventually, though, got a bit more of a clue and, and managed to grow the business to, to somewhere close to where it is today, which is around 80 people across the UK and the US and a few million in, in ARR. I then, uh, in 2018, had, had a burnout um, and that was a long kind of uh, period of, of my career where I had to sort of reflect and, and really go back to ground zero, to be honest. And part of that reflection was that I really wasn't happy where I was and, and doing what I was doing for a number of reasons. And so I decided to leave and so exited that company. <clears throat> uh, the company's still going, but I'm no longer part of that. And then I was like, okay, well, what, what do I do now? And thought, well, I don't want to start a startup just yet, uh, but I really want to work with startups. So that's how I started looking at advisory positions, uh, talked to a few incubator accelerator type companies and liked what EF was doing, I thought it was really interesting in a new area in, in terms of deep tech for me uh, that I hadn't been in before, and also in terms of venture because the chat shop was was bootstrapped and debt funded. We actually made profit, which is unusual in, in the startup world these days. So I thought it was a great opportunity and also the role happened to be in Paris. So my wife and I moved here in September 2019, and I'm just about completing my second cohort with EF. Uh, so I've worked with about 120 entrepreneurs. Uh, and so far, we've built about 13 startups over that period. And here I am today talking to you. <laughs> wow, what a, what a story. So there are lots of topics we, we want to unpack and understand in more depth. Maybe to start off with one, um, entrepreneurship first. 
who are they um, and why did you get involved with them and what are they actually doing? You mentioned cohorts, uh, you mentioned mentorship. Tell us all about EF. Sure, sure. So Entrepreneur First is about eight years old now, started by Matt Clifford and Alice, uh, who uh, left McKinsey and wanted to try and solve the problem of how do you find a co-founder and start a, a meaningful company if you don't live in Silicon Valley? How do you do that in, in a European context? And so EF created this new category called talent investing, where basically every six months now across seven locations globally, we will search out um, a number of top performing outlier people who we believe have the potential to do something truly impactful. And we will recruit them to come on our program and uh, pay them to do so. And so if they get into the program, uh, they will be paid for three months. And within that group of people we've selected, their objective is to find a co-founder and begin working on a truly ambitious idea that is relevant to their previous backgrounds and experiences. And at the end of that three months, we will also offer them the opportunity for ES to become their first investor. So uh, the potential is that you can join as basically an individual. And after three months, consisting of some financial support, but also some advice and, and mentorship and uh, education, at the end of that process, you can potentially leave with a, with a pre-seed funded company. Uh, and then if we fund you, we'll also support you in developing your seed round. So we then have a second phase of the program, which is six months, where we continue working with the, the new startups we've created with those teams and help them get to a position where they're seed funded as well. So it's kind of a, a new model, um, but it's been going now for eight years. So I guess very well established. The, 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 there's over 200 companies that ES founded, um, and they're now backed by people like you know Reid Hoffman and, and Peter Thiel um, in terms of some of the some of the people that back the fund. So uh, it's been a really interesting model to work with. And obviously, because of the finding the co-founder element, there's a whole nother dynamic in the program versus traditional accelerators, where obviously you come with a co-founder and probably with an idea. That co-founder fit and idea generation piece is all part of what we're doing here. Fantastic. And so what does it mean to be an entrepreneur in residence at EF? <laughs> yeah, so... Entrepreneur residence is one of those job titles where people think it might be cool, but no one really knows what you do. Um, so entrepreneurs in residence for some funds that aren't EF, it, you're brought in to basically build a new company. At EF, our role is to share our experience, our guidance, and support the initial companies we create from idea to something that is pre-seed fundable and ultimately seed fundable. So we really play the role of uh, a mentor, a coach, uh, sometimes a therapist, and often with the, with the PhDs that we're bringing in, very often I'm a student as well, trying to understand these uh, crazy technologies that they're, that they're working on. Um, but really our, our job is to help them understand what does good look like for them, uh, and to support them in achieving objectives where they can legitimately take that company forwards and hopefully avoid some of the pitfalls that we as entrepreneurs ourselves have made along the way. So it's, uh, it's, a, it's a very fun job. Uh, I get paid to talk about startups all day, um, but it's uh, also very intellectually challenging. You go from seeing a team working on maybe, you know, quantum uh, computing to a team working on CRISPR gene editing to a team working on 
uh, cancer diagnostics all in the space for an hour and a half. So uh, it's, uh, it's very fun, but very challenging at the same time. Fantastic. Um, and you have a very important story to tell on founder mental health, which we'll get onto um, in a bit. And I, I just first wanted to ask you a few questions in relation to being an advisor then at EF, because I think you must have seen some really interesting journeys of these startups that you're advising. So I'm, I'm interested to know, as, as an advisor of deep tech startups, what is perhaps the most common question that you get asked that you can see a kind of solution to? <laughs> um, so I think the most common challenge for real deep tech projects is often what does good look like? Um, if you are building anything other than SaaS, and obviously you can build deep tech SaaS, but if you're building anything other than SaaS, there's often a lot less of a roadmap, a lot less of a playbook than there is uh, if you're building a, a traditional B2B SaaS product. And so I think for a lot of the founders, the question is, I have maybe this technology or I know how to do these things, but how do I find an application for that? How do I, and once I found the application for it, how do I then actually be successful? What does that look like? What's the trajectory and what's the roadmap? Um, and I think one of the, one of the interesting things is that there's almost always some analogous company that has probably done something similar or tried to do something similar, maybe in a different form or a different vein that you can start to blueprint from. But I definitely think there is a, a correlation between how deep tech is your project and how difficult is it to therefore find a roadmap? So for example, if you're working on something that is really, 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 really like edge, bleeding edge technology, then sometimes it can be quite hard to actually figure out, well, how do we commercialize this? Because they're really, you, you really are kind of the, the, the first explorer. Um, in other cases though, especially in areas like life science, there's actually now, I think quite a lot of support resources and other companies that have gone on that journey and been successful. So you can start to, I think, map and understand how did those people make it, you know, from the lab into full-scale production uh, and really get that product out into the marketplace. Um, so I, I think probably the biggest thing is that roadmap and probably the biggest solution to that is how can you be the person that really becomes familiar with how other companies did it and start to build your own mental model of what a pathway like this looks like. And also, are there more specialist people in the space or in the industry that you can reach out and contact who can shortcut some of these things? So, for example, one of the teams we're working with uh, is, is doing something very interesting in uh, CRISPR. And they found someone who's done exactly the same thing, but for a different, uh, slightly different application as an advisor. So in doing that, they can obviously radically shortcut some of the learnings and some of the mistakes that they would have inevitably made had they been doing this just on their own. And how much of what you've learned during uh, your time at the chat shop as a SaaS company um, can help you with helping those deep tech companies? <laughs> yes, yeah, that's a very good question. And something that I think when I arrived, I was a bit like, oh crap, I'm not really sure. Uh, not really sure what live chat has to do here. But I think one of the really interesting things is that especially in the first three months to the six months of a company's life, there are some quite fundamental things that are true no matter what you're building. Um, so for example, are you with the right co-founder is probably the most important thing that 
you can ask yourself in those early days and is the dynamic between you good we'll often talk about is one does one plus one make three because really that's what you're looking for in an excellent co-founder relationship that you're even better together than you are as an individual the other thing is there are some very fundamental questions that you need to answer one of the main ones being is there a need for this is this a problem and does our solution meet that need the sort of customer discovery framework as it were and even with more research-based projects or more high-tech or deep-tech projects uh, a lot of the time in the model that we use anyway there, there still needs to be some sort of market and some sort of ability to demonstrate that this is solving a real and urgent and pressing problem so that you're not spending, you know, obviously millions and millions of dollars in the hope that, that, that a market will kind of be created. You have to have some evidence and some ability to talk through the existing market structures, the existing challenges that customers face, real world use cases, and understand how is your technology going to massively displace or capture that value. And so I think one of the big translatables from doing what I was doing before is that a lot of my work was actually in uh, sales, was in customer development, was in client work, was in trying to drive the product and, and market forwards. And so that skill set, I think, of just understanding how can you get on, get in touch with the right people? How can you understand if something is a problem? How can you have good conversations that really validate a particular issue? I think those are some of the core things that entrepreneurs need to do in that first three-month phase is really validate and really understand that problem to a, a level of insight that is what we might call non-obvious had you not done those things. So we're not talking about just reading a Forrester report or a Gartner report and, and starting a company off the back of that. We're talking about being able to say, I spoke with Jill and she said this is the worst problem she's had in her life and she's been looking for a solution for three months and blah, 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 blah. Um, and really have a molecular understanding of that customer and that problem because then what you're building is going to be built on something that people actually need and people actually want. And that's probably the, the fastest way to ensure that your company is successful is, is to solve problems that matter to people. Now, as an advisor, you're in, in a very important role in, in shaping the, the journey of the entrepreneurs and of the companies they are trying to build. What have been some of the moments over the course uh, of, of the year where you've said, wow, this is really fun and this is really great. Um, the impact I've had on that person or that company has been worthwhile doing all that work as an advisor. Yeah, uh, I mean, it, you're right. It is, it is a very rewarding job um, and a privilege, I think, often to, to work with such smart people and, you know, to have them think that you've done something useful is always nice to hear. I think one of the interesting things that I've found consistently is how important communication is of what you're doing as to whether or not you're successful. And I just communicate that in a really bad way. So let me, let me try and reframe it myself. Um, the ability to, to tell a story, the ability to share your insights in a structured way, the ability to convey a vision and a mission and a message and your demonstration of even short-term traction, where you're going, what you want to do, why you guys, um, all these elements are so, so important in the delta between whether investors buy into what you're doing or not. And we've had many cases whereby uh, our initial sort of mock, let's say, review of companies has been quite poor. 
and then we can work with them to really structure the same business, the same fundamental information they're presenting, but the way in which they present it becomes so much more intelligible that it has the impact that it should have. And I think one of the things that founders often sometimes get frustrated with is that they have to sort of communicate in a certain way. But really, I think good communication of what you're doing is so important, whether you're looking for investment for uh, to recruit the top talent to come on board with you, or of course, looking for actual customers. Can you really communicate very clearly in a way that people can understand stuff? Because people don't buy what they can't understand, whether they're an investor or whether they're a customer. And so I think one of the biggest deltas is often not necessarily in the functional achievements they've made as a company, but a lot of the time is can they actually get those achievements across in a way that people understand and value. Fantastic. Um, taking this conversation on a slight tangent now, um, we understand that you've you've got quite a powerful story to tell, um, and I think it's really a really important one to be telling. So we'd be really grateful if you could tell us and also share with our listeners what your own experiences are with dealing with mental health as a founder. I was one of those people that I think a lot of entrepreneurs are from from having given a, a talk about this a few times and speaking with other people's experiences. I was one of those people who recognized that mental health is a thing. Obviously, it affects people. In the last company I was in, we had a number of people with different issues and, and so forth. But I always thought, you know, I'm, I'm kind of semi-invincible. I'm an entrepreneur. This will never, this will never happen to me. And on the 31st of October, uh, that kind of all got shattered. So 31st of October, 2018, I went out in the morning, had some meetings with a client, didn't feel great, felt a bit spaced out, but, but took to my usual remedy, which was about three uh, very strong coffees to try and kickstart me back into uh, some sort of semblance of normality. And then after the meeting ended and we got back to the office, I just felt terrible. I felt really spaced out, really awful. And so I just excused myself and, and drove home. Called my co-founder on the way home and I was like, dude, something's wrong. Don't know what's going on, but you know, something's, something's really wrong. I got home and luckily my wife was, was in, uh, in the house that day. And I walked through the door and I collapsed and then I cried for three days. Um, and all I could do was sleep and cry. And that was my sole existence for those three days. And after that, after some of the uh, constant tears abated, I would then cry at minor decisions. My wife said to me, what, what clothes do I want? I would cry because that was too overwhelming for me. If I left the house and was in the street, I would be overwhelmed with anxiety and, and I would end up in tears. And so my whole world kind of fell around my ears. We'd actually only just got married three months ago as well. So I think my wife's, my wife's world fell around her ears as well very quickly. You know, this honeymoon period of marriage turned into uh, a hot blubbering mess who, who couldn't get dressed. And for those two weeks, I, I basically just sat and the only thing I could really do to take my mind off it was play video games. So I just played video games pretty much all day and then slept and did some crying and slept and so on. Uh, went to see the, the doctor. Uh, they kind of said, you know, I've obviously burnt out. Uh, I, I'm probably depressed. I've probably got anxiety um, and suggested the normal stuff, which is therapy and, and antidepressants. So I held off on the antidepressants, but I did start therapy. Uh, and after those two weeks, 
and some initial therapy, I started to go back to work, feeling like, okay, I was sort of back to what I thought was normal. So I went back to work and then a number of weeks passed. Um, and one day I was meeting with one of my mentors at the time, actually, and we were, ha- we were talking about the company and so on, and, and the conversation shifted. And he basically looked at me and he was like, Johnny, you're really still not okay, are you? Uh, and then that was it. And then I, I burst into tears again and went all the way back down the rabbit hole where I thought I'd come out from in those short two weeks uh, to realize that actually what I thought was normal after those two weeks was so far from normal, but that it had become my normal. Um, and so I was actually way more broken than I, I thought I was. I was way more damaged than I realized. Uh, and that really was then the, the bigger path to recovery. So that was when I then uh, had to start taking uh, this, the antidepressants because at that point uh, I kind of uh, started having some suicidal thoughts, um, which were really difficult to deal with and obviously quite scary for, for everyone involved. So I, I decided to medicate uh, as well and use that as another tool in, in, in trying to get better. And then I ended up taking, I think, about seven or eight weeks uh, completely off and just trying to go through a process of uh, rebuilding, of figuring out what was the cause of this, the causes, how did I get here? Um, am I broken? Am I ever going to be whole again? Am I always going to be this sort of blubbering mess? You know, you go from a position where you're responsible for, for the livelihoods of sort of 80 people and they pay their rent for you and then you you cry when you're trying to get dressed, you know, it's, it's it's a very humbling experience, but in a very hard way to deal with because it's just you drop off a cliff edge, essentially. And so through that process of, of therapy, I also did uh, coaching, which I still do both to these days, and through medication and obviously professional medical advice. Um, I came to various conclusions, and one of those conclusions was that I'm clearly very unhappy. Um, something is clearly fundamentally broken, and I, and for me, one of those things was that the environment and and the, the role and the company just weren't right for me anymore. And so I then had to have quite a difficult conversation, obviously, which was saying to to my co-founder and uh, the other shareholders, basically, I'm out. I'm not going to do this anymore. Uh, and so we had to go through, obviously, the process of how do we do that, breaking up the company, uh, reselling my shares, all that kind of stuff. Um, and through my kind of notice period, I then started looking for, for what's next um, and ended up, like I say, finding this role at EF in Paris. Um, and that presented a really nice opportunity as well for us for like a, a fresh start, I guess, new culture, new country, new job, new environment, new everything, like a clean slate. But I think the, the hardest thing to, I guess, work through with all of this stuff is that this stuff can happen to you and as an entrepreneur i think it's just not something that most people think will happen to them i think most people even probably listening to this today will probably say wow that's a really shit story wow that's really sad um but you know i'm probably okay and i think one of the hardest things to do as an entrepreneur is actually to to make time to figure out are you okay and what's going on for you? Because you, you, there's the, the, the expression, right? Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And I think that entrepreneurs by definition are hugely driven, hugely ambitious. And 
it's a requirement of the job to believe in something that is in some way slightly impossible at this point in time, right? You can't be an entrepreneur if you deal only in today and tomorrow and next week. You have to believe in something coming into existence. But sometimes I think that future-looking view means that you fail to check in, you fail to understand, are you okay, are you not okay, what's going on for you? And it also the pressure of running a company is huge. Uh, you have eventually investors, potentially, you have customers, you have staff, you have a family perhaps to support through the endeavor and who will need to support you as well because a startup or a company is a lifestyle, it's not a job. And so it can be a very, I think, lonely place, a very isolating place. And therefore, I think it's very easy for people to very gently drift down a pathway. And unfortunately, often I think the wake-up call is a cataclysmic event like a burnout, rather than understanding that along that way, you've been deteriorating uh, through that process. So that's, I guess, a, a brief, well, not that brief, but a relatively brief summary of of the journey I, I went through and kind of some of the key learnings that I, I've had from here, but happy to happy to discuss more on this because I think it's an important uh, topic to, to talk about as well. Wow, thank you so much for being so open and sharing your story with us. I, I agree. I think it's such an important thing to talk about. So, And it's so rare to kind of find somebody who's um, so open with talking about it. So yeah, thank you so much. Um, and yeah, if you don't mind a few sort of follow up questions, um, you you mentioned that it kind of got got to that stage that you had burnt out. Are you able to identify any early signs of burnout or what should founders be looking out for? And how do you recommend to respond respond to them to be able to take on such a demanding sort of job or lifestyle as you say um but but while still maintaining healthy yeah it's a really good question and i think it's one of the things as well that is very confusing when when you have a cataclysmic event like that because by definition you obviously didn't realize well hopefully you didn't realize that you're about to have that cataclysmic event and so yeah i think warning signs is a really interesting question i mean i'm sure it differs for everyone for me looking back I think there were a few things. One is, I think if you have a perpetual anxiety or you're constantly feeling like you have to, you know, you're always just running and on the go and to an unhealthy level. And to unpack this a bit more, I think one of the challenges is that it almost feels like you're supposed to always be running, right? It's entrepreneurship, like you have to go, you have to go fast, you have to run, you have to be quick. And all those things are true. But there's a point where I think you need to figure out, is that still a healthy behavior or have you started to slip into a place where it's manifesting itself as, for example, stress and anxiety to an unhealthy level? Are you constantly checking your phone? Are you constantly uh, thinking about lots of things but not really having coherent thoughts? Are you scattered in your working approach? Do you dive from one thing to another, to another, to another, to another, rather than doing consistent work? Do you constantly feel like you're behind in some way and that feeling is a feeling of dread or concern or worry or angst? The other thing I think is how are you when you wake up in the morning, right? There's going to be periods, obviously, in every company that require more work, more stress. You need to close around. A big customer cancels. There's always going to be these cataclysmic events. 
But if you are waking up every single morning and you're struggling to get out of bed, I mean, physically struggling to wake up and you're dreading going in or you're dreading the day or you're dreading what you're, what's coming up or you're constantly feeling like it's just, you know, this awful fight, then perhaps it's time for you to take a step back and take some rest and get some new perspective on how things are going uh, and whatever. What happens from a company called the Energy Project, I check out some of their research, it's really interesting, but you can often associate what state you're in based on the emotions you're experiencing. So if you imagine a two-by-two two quadrant, if you're feeling uh, in, a, in a place of rest, then you'll probably be feeling relaxed, carefree, easygoing, etc. If you're feeling in a place of uh, low performance, you'll probably be feeling anxious, defensive, angry, tense, frustrated. Um, and so by understanding, I think, some of the emotions that are associated with your energy level, you can start to understand what space are you in. And ideally, what you should be doing, like a professional athlete does, how do they perform? Well, they perform with an intense period of work, let's say a football match or a basketball match or whatever their match is, and they'll do a season. And then they'll have an intense period of pure recovery. And they'll oscillate between those two states, high performance, rest and recovery, high performance, rest and recovery, high performance, rest and recovery. Now, what often happens is, for a startup, is by definition of the work, you end up going from rest and recovery into high performance. But then if you stay in high performance for a long time, you'll end up going into performance, which is kind of a lower version of, of high performance. And that's where those emotions I mentioned earlier come in, you know, anxiety, fearful, tense, angry, frustrated. Now, if you stay in that box for too long, then the next step for you will be burnout. And so I think the key thing to understand is that you, everyone says this, but it really is a marathon, not a sprint. You know, you, you take it from me, you cannot run a company when you just cry all the time and you sleep all day. Um, and so I think one of the mental tricks that entrepreneurs play on themselves is that I can outwork other people. And there's some very famous entrepreneurs who are philosophers of this mantra. I can just will out everyone else. I can just hold on longer. I can just push harder. I can just work more. The problem is that unless you're doing uh, something like manual labor where physically I can build more houses than you or I can do something where the output if I do 10 hours of making widgets I'm going to make more widgets than if you do five hours when it comes to the a lot of the work that people are doing today which is creative knowledge-based work every single research paper every single study shows that your performance decreases drastically after about 50 hours and so I think one of the things to retrain your mind is that rest is a positive and needed part of being successful that you should be taking vacation because you shouldn't be building a job you should build a company so if you can't go on holiday that's a great trigger for you to go hang on a sec why why the hell am i paying all these other people what the hell are they doing why do i still need to be here every single day or else the company can't function when was my last break Am I, when I'm going away, am I actually away? Like I'm talking out of office on, Slack deleted or off, phone away from me. Uh, like, am I actually allowing my brain and my body to enter a state of rest? Or am I just in a, in a, in a villa somewhere with a laptop doing all the calls that I would normally be doing, but now I'm by a pool and there's sunshine rather than in an office in, in London or wherever you are, for example. So I think that that concept of rest 
needs to be something that entrepreneurs take seriously and founders take seriously. Um, and the only other warning sign that I'll, I'll share is obviously things like uh, drink, drugs, other substances, right? I've always been a big drinker. Uh, I've always been someone that likes to have a party, normally the last one there. Um, but there's often a very fine line that you miss whereby perhaps, you know, you're, you're drinking to escape things or you're drinking far too frequently or you're drinking far too much when you do drink and you have apologies to make in the morning or, or things like this. You know, those behaviors, I think, are very easy and especially in British culture to, to sort of laugh off or pass off as, hey, he's just, you know, he's just a party guy. But at some point, I think someone, either yourself or someone else needs to be saying to you, you know, hey, maybe this is a sign of something else going wrong. You know, are you using other things to help you cope? Uh, like substances, like uh, I know some people might be gambling, other people might be smoking. Uh, what are your vices uh, that we all have? But at what point are those vices going into overdrive? I think that's also a big cue for people to pay attention to. You already mentioned, Johnny, that entrepreneurship is maybe a particularly difficult environment um, to be in and to get that balance right between full-on performance and, and recovery because you're exposed to so many external pressures that you can't really control. So you're chasing the customers and if the customer get, gets back to you, then you want to respond as, as good and as soon as you can. So what would be your advice in particular for early stage founders who kind of have to build up everything from scratch, how they can get that balance right between full-on performance and, and meaningful recovery? Yes, it's a great question. I, I think even for non-early stage founders, you know, I, I, would, I would almost extend that if I may to, to just how does one balance these conflicting objectives? But one of the things that happened to me when I met my mentor and kind of had my second, I guess, deeper breakdown, should we say, um, is I said to him, I, you know, I've just taken two weeks off. I can't take any more time off. You know, you're crazy. And he said, is, is there a multi-million dollar contract that you're going to miss out on in the next six weeks if you're not there? And I was like, no, we don't, we don't have anything like that lined up. And he said, so you need to rest. That's the most important thing right now. And I think one of the tricks we can play on ourselves is that, like I said, you can do more outwork more and that's going to be your secret source you will not be able to be performant if you burn out right the two things are physically impossible you can't be burnt out and be a high performer right it's a complete contradiction as well as that getting back from a burnout to a state of performance probably takes you somewhere between six to eight months to fully recover Uh, and even then, a lot of people who've burnt out say they still don't have the same energy levels that they did before the burnout. Like it's a cataclysmic event. Uh, it's your body literally saying, no, enough, stop. So when you start to think about yourself <clears throat> and your objectives and your goals in terms of I need to respond to these customers, I need to get these investors, I need to do these things, just try and bear in mind that, yes, you need to do all those, but you will be able to do none of those. <laughs> Zero. <laughs> If you don't look after yourself through the process, if you don't make the respect of your mind, of your body, of your wellness part of your business strategy, you know, you are by far, in theory, your, your company's most valuable resource, especially in the early stages. And so like a professional athlete, are you looking after yourself in a way that gives you the ability to perform at the level you need to perform at? 
And as a second point, I mean, I think there are always going to be times where you have to push harder. For example, in the, in the three months running up to the investment that we uh, as EF make or do not make in the companies we've built, work with the founders to build, that's going to be a really intense three months, right? That's going to be a really intense period of a lot of work, a lot of redoing, uh, probably a lot of socializing with the cohort. So, you, you know, you're going to end that period relatively tired. So after that period, are you taking a week off? Like, are you taking a week out? The problem sometimes I think is that the goalposts, and I definitely have this mentality, the goalposts shift as soon as you hit them. So the goalposts for a lot of founders, let's say coming into EF or let's say starting a company, will probably be to get the first round of investment from someone. That's a pretty typical first stage for people. The problem is once they work really, really, really hard to get to that point, then they get it. But instead of then saying, okay, I've achieved an objective that I set for myself. Now I need to maybe take some r and I need to take a week out. I need to take a couple of weeks out. I need to go on holiday. I need to have a digital detox, whatever it is, before I do the next run. They go, okay, right, we've got, we've got C, we've got pre-seed. Right, now we need to work towards Series A. Right, we get Series A. Now we need to work towards Series B. And so the mentality becomes that you set these big objectives. You work super hard to get to them, but you forget to celebrate and therefore also understand what was the energy expended to that and how do I reclaim that in some way before I then go on to conquer the next thing. The last point I'd just like to share on this is like there are very few things, really, really, really very few things that would be cataclysmic for your company. If you do not respond to a customer immediately, might not be great, but is it going to destroy something? Is it going to actually cause them to quit? A lot of the time we, we catastrophize a lot and we like to think that we are way more important than we are in the events that tend to unfold based on the actions that we do or do not take. And so I think that mentality of understanding some perspective that yes, your company is important. Yes, you want it to succeed. Yes, it would be great if you could be, I don't know, the next Elon or whatever your objective is. Those are all amazing things. And yes, it's great to have big objects like that. But just remember, you will do none of those things if you burn out, if you do not look after yourself. And you may well have a high opportunity cost in other things that actually really do matter a lot more than fame and wealth and, and material success such as you might lose your family, you might lose your loved ones, you might lose your friends if you, if you neglect those through a certain period. And so I think just having some perspective is really important and not kidding yourself so much that the bubble of what you've created is the single most important thing in the world, I think will hopefully help you to maybe respect yourself and your energy a bit more and try and keep some healthy perspective between, yes, I want this to work, yes, I want to try really hard, but I'm also willing to take a break. I'm also willing to be kind to myself through the process and not use it as a way of beating myself, you know, to a point where every customer email has to be replied to in 30 seconds or else everything's going to, you know, go completely wrong and it's going to be the world's biggest disaster and I'll be a, an abject failure. You know, no, it's, it's not that binary. It's not that black and white. One of our listeners um, has submitted a question, which I think is excellent. Um, and so John Doherty, who is founder of Orcascan, um, he's asking, if you were starting a new venture tomorrow, what would you do differently? And perhaps within that, you could discuss um, where some of the bulk of the pressure comes from when you're running a startup um, and how exactly do you mitigate some of those issues? You've touched on a lot of it, but yeah, maybe you could um, kind of give some tips for founders to watch out for. 
Yeah, great question. Um, I think I think the first thing would definitely be around who am I doing this with? I think co-founder complementarity is really important, but not just on a skill level, but also on a personal level. So are you working with someone who has a complementary skill set to you, i.e. not the same stuff that you know how to do well, and there isn't too much overlap on that, that you're comfortable very early on from delineating roles, job titles, and so forth, because that's a mark of that you both respect what each other is going to be bringing and doing for the company. But also on a personal level, do you share some concept of values of what you want to build, how you want to build it, the life you want to lead through the process as well of building that? Some people, for example, want to work on a beach in Bali and build stuff from there. Other people want to have an office building and have a team around them. So I think those things are also some of the softer things that you also need to be clear on, as well as your overall intentions. You know, are you trying to build a unicorn? Are you trying to build a lifestyle business? These are two very different objectives. And if you don't get that agreed up front, then that can be something that's a big cause of tension later. The second thing I think I would think about is what do I want from this? And there is a track that is the VC track, but that is only right for a very specific type of company. Uh, and for a specific goal. And the specific goal, if you want to raise VC money, is to build a really, 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 really big company. There is there's like no other objective on that model except to build a massive organization. There are other companies you can build, though. You could build, like I said, a lifestyle business. You could build uh, a business that just allows you to work from wherever in the world you want to work from. You could build a business that's just you, that's just you doing freelance services or you doing courses or you doing some other variation of that so why are you doing this i think is a question that often we kind of forget to ask ourselves and you know looking back at the the last stuff that i found is there was a, a very clear and retrospect inflection point for me where actually probably in year four or five we could have spun that into a really nice lifestyle business that would have paid a really nice salary um brought in someone to kind of run that and have that all ticking over. But because we were so ostensibly focused on making a really, really, really big company, we didn't do that and, and tried to push to the next mile. And that became a very, very challenging, challenging thing to do. Um, and so what, what's the value of the idea you're working on as well? Is, is the idea you're working on something you want to be big or is it does it deserve to be big? Is the problem that you're trying to service big? There's a great article. Um, I always forget who wrote it. So apologies to whoever wrote it if you're listening to this. But basically saying to do something 10x harder doesn't require 10x the effort. Um, and what he's really talking about there is that if you want to undertake a massively globally important business, you're probably not going to expend 10 times the energy to a lifestyle business. But equally, you can, if you're careful, I think, to counter his point, build a lifestyle business that does require a lot less energy than a massive, huge VC backable company. Um, you just have to be way more careful and intentional about it. So I think the first thing would be the co-founder. The second thing would be the intention. What kind of company do I want to build? And the third thing I think would be the point I touched on earlier, which is milestones is being very clear about what are the big bricks that I need to move in order for this company to be successful. And once I've moved them, what's the energy recuperation? What's the payoff? What's the celebration even? 
that I'm going to make sure I entertain rather than getting into this habit of knocking down pins. And I've knocked down one. Now I have to quickly knock down the other. Now I have to quickly knock down the other. Trying to remember that you have time. As much as you don't feel like it, you do probably have time. And there are probably one or two things you can do and focus on that will make everything else substantially easier. If you've read the book, The One Thing, I think it's a good mindset to have. So rather than focusing on every single tiny fire that's going on, really being quite cynical and focusing on the big thing that's going to move the needle on everything else, even if that means that some of those other things go down the toilet a little bit as you're focusing on that thing, rather than trying to constantly fight these little fires, try and put out the biggest fire that then extinguishes all the others as a result. Uh, the last thing I think I would add is I would, I would look at a much, much, much better network of formal advisors and mentors who are able to support me as a founder through the emotional as well as through the functional journey of entrepreneurship. And I think that a lot of the advice that people tend to receive is great strategic and tactical advice. And I think that it's really also important to develop relationships with people who you respect and who you trust, who are able to be that kind of canary in the mind for you sometimes, who are able to help be that messenger of, hey, dude, you probably need to take a break right now. Or, hey, man, you look like you're really tired. Or, you know, to, to try and also be someone who's that security for you as well as your own security um, through that process. I think there'd probably be the four points that come to mind straight away. There's probably others, but there'd probably be the four big areas that I think about next time. Fantastic. Um, so if I can sort of summarize those four points um, as we're coming to the end of this podcast. So the first one that you were saying as your uh, take home message for founders is um, be sure about who your co-founder is and how your working style and values align. The second one was about the intentions that you've got for the company and why you're actually doing it. The third one is setting milestones and giving yourself room to breathe once you've met each of those milestones. And the fourth one was about having a network of formal advisors, both for um, business strategy, but also for your own sort of personal strategy for coping with things like this. Um, and I think those are definitely excellent take home messages for anybody listening to this podcast episode. Um, just to to end, um, if, if there are founders or anybody that finds that they're um, managing a business and are struggling with things like this where can um they go to look for more advice and um yeah maybe you can advise them advise them on that sure i mean uh, caveat i'm obviously not a medical professional so uh this this shouldn't be treated as gospel what i did was i started with my gp i had two very different experiences with two different gps so i would always try and get a couple of opinions one was outstanding the other one was was pretty crap so i think go to your gp explain to them what's going on if you feel like you're in a bad place don't be afraid of using tools like medication there's no shame in it antidepressants work they're a leg up but then you also have to i think invest in helping to find out root causes of that particular issue helping to understand why you're in that space and I would suggest to everyone, really, whether you are healthy or non-healthy uh, right now, therapy is an amazing investment and one that you should seriously consider making. 
if you want to be a leader of people, you need to understand yourself, your behaviors and your quirks and your foibles. I think if everyone had therapy, the world would probably be a lot more peaceful and, and, and a better place. So I would strongly suggest, even if you're feeling completely healthy, to invest in some therapy. But therapy is a great tool if you are struggling as well. And the other tool that I personally used was also meditation. Uh, I used Headspace, uh, if you, I'm sure you've heard of that. Uh, and also looking at uh, coaching. So I have a, a life coach, proactive coach, who I talk to as well, which is more also about the future and, and understanding your future direction therapy. I find more useful for understanding how I got to be how I am and how I can then deal with that in a new and different way in the future. Um, so for me, four things, uh, professional medical help, including medication, therapy, even if you think you don't need it, I would strongly suggest you get it, coaching, and then things like uh, meditation as well. Well, you've certainly addressed a very, very important topic, Johnny. Um, it has been great fun um, having you on the show. Thank you so very much for sharing so openly um, what you've learned. I'm, I'm sure a few um, entrepreneurs out there uh, will greatly benefit from that advice. No worries. And if people want to connect with me as well, feel free. I'm Johnny Everett on LinkedIn, at Johnny Chats on Twitter. Uh, more than happy to, to talk and to meet some of your listeners. Brilliant. Thank you. Thanks very much, Johnny. Thank you both. Thanks very much to Johnny for joining us on Q Talks. The podcast was produced by Carl Homer from Cambridge TV. And we would also like to say a big thanks to the team at QTech, who have all been working very hard behind the scenes. Thank you very much for listening and please do go ahead and rate us or leave a review on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. You can tweet us at QTech to suggest a guest or theme or tell us your experiences with applying technical skills at startups. You'll also find us at qtech.io slash qtalks.